Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Okay, so I've been waiting a long time for a conversation like this. Today we're talking to David John. David John commented on one of our Instagram posts from a vegan perspective, but from a curiosity perspective, and he got jumped on. Uh, we interacted with him the way that we interact with people, very gentlemanly, trying to understand. And then I messaged him and I said, man, you're the kind of guy, because at the end of the interaction, he understood. So I DM'd him, I said, you're the kind of guy that I want to have on our podcast. And I want to have you on our podcast regularly, because you clearly have a different value set than the typical hunting community. And that's who we want to talk to. So that's what we just did. And it was an hour. I want you to listen to the entire thing. Because the good stuff is, is all the way through it, all the way up to the end. And we're going to have David John on regularly. Because I think having these kinds of discussions, talking about hunting-related issues with a vegan, is good for our community. So enjoy. Get something from it. Take something away from it. And yeah. I can't wait for you to listen to this. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is... <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter.
So you got a quote behind you. I can't really read the quote. The, oh, the, yes. The video is a little like fuzzy. What does the quote say? This was written by one of my employees. It says, um, this is a tree dedicated to David John, a.k.a. Father Wyatt. Namaste. Nice. This is, I like I, it. I guess I have the reputation of being a sort of tree hugger in the office. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being a tree hugger, David. <laughs> that's right. That's probably what, what got this all started. A little bit of that. A little bit of that in my soul well, brought me to your Instagram account. Look, man, it's, you know, I think that, you know, I think we're going to dive off on a rabbit hole right away. I, I don't see a difference. I don't see the, I don't see the difference in terms of the paradigm of what you're after versus what I'm after. I think it's the same thing. It, it very well could be. I was thinking a lot about this conversation. I decided not to over-prepare because I have my beliefs and I, I think I would like to see how that just organically meshes with with uh, your movement. I was recommended to go follow your account because of a conversation I had with one of my hunting enthusiast friends, Kendall Jones, who's actually an influencer Absolutely. in the hunting space. Yeah, she, she's quite, uh, well, she has some documentaries under her belt and uh, she's quite mm -hmm. good at this. She's done a lot of kind of African safari type things. She's trophy hunted mm -hmm. a lot of um, animals mm -hmm. I would consider quite maybe sacred and majestic. Um, sure, sure. And, uh, and so we have these conversations and we're quite cordial. And she just, she's like, you need to, you need to get a little educated and go follow this account. And so right away I, I did. And I saw that post and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Perfect. You're exactly the kind of person we want to talk to David. Oh, good. You're the, exactly the kind of person that we need to listen to. It's your opinion, your perspective that we need to understand and not just flippantly, and, and you live in the space, not flippantly just go, ah, that's just how it is, and who cares about what you think, because I don't need to care about what you think, because I can do what I want, David. No. Right. At, at the end of the day, you know, trophy hunting and, and other kinds of sport hunting and things like that are just going to happen, regardless of my opinions. Um, but, you know, I, I am, uh, so I don't represent the brand I work for, but um, my brand is a big champion for gun rights in general, the Second Amendment, and I personally am a, I'm a huge fan of, of guns and their usage, mm -hmm. and I even don't mm -hmm. mind you know, the idea of hunting for food. I feel like that's mm -hmm. natural and fine. Mm -hmm. And so you know, specifically when it comes to hunting without what I perceive as a purpose, um, and, mm -hmm. I, and I appreciate that your content strives to show that purpose – um, it's just to me, I put I put the purpose of the hunting up against the life of the animal that's dying for it, and so then, you know, then I have a little conflict. Sure, sure. David, just give a little bit of background. Uh, one number one, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast, David. Is Thank it David you. John? David John Wyatt? It's David John. Of, yeah, all of the above. David John. Okay, I put them both together, smashed them together. Nice. Uh, David, John, can you give us a little bit about your upbringing, maybe your background? I, I assume you're, you've never hunted. Right. I'm not, you're not a hunter. Correct. I'm not a hunter. Uh, I've never been hunting. I, uh, I grew up in uh, California in a conservative home. Uh, my family was raised Christian. Uh, we do like guns. I do own a, a gun. I have a handgun. It's a little Smith & Wesson uh, nine millimeter. Actually, it's an XD compact. It's nice. I, I like it. Um, and then my family has a lot of guns. I've gone. My bachelor party actually was taking me and my brothers and brother-in-laws out 
into the forest and we went shooting. Uh, we did clay pigeons and all that good nice. stuff. I, um, I have a, a big history with guns and I'm a huge fan of all that. Um, I, I did grow up religious. I, I left religion in, in specifically, but I took from it, you know, a, a lot of deep spirituality. So I'm a very spiritual mm-hmm. person. I have a bunch of tattoos on my left arm and they're all spiritual and they're all different kinds of uh, representations of the values I enjoy from world religions. And I think that the the spirit of of us is really the most real part of us, uh, even though it's the part of us where maybe it's uh, we have the hardest time reaching to. And so when I you know, engage in life. I'm a very principled person. I maybe an idealist or, you know, kind of a heads in the cloud in some cases for sure. But I think that's important to, uh, you know, there was a Elon Musk called out the idea of first principles, um, arguing logic to first principles, you know, what are the basic principles you're actually discussing? And then, you know, stay there for a minute until you really understand that. And then you can argue Mm. things like semantics and logistics and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm of the same mindset. So where, where awesome. I have um, this deep appreciation for all life, and I consider humans part of the animal kingdom, with you know only you know a difference in how we um, express ourselves through art and culture. I think that's really the only difference between us and other animals. Uh, I I think you know we uh, we all evolved to coexist, and sometimes that means eating other animals. So I don't have an issue specifically with that, mm-hmm. although. Although surprise, surprise, I am a vegan person. Uh, it, uh, I know that it's very that's stereotypical. A good, that's a good. No, that's a good piece of context, right? Because it's almost like I like to use this analogy, and someone, it's not mine. I'm, I'm, I'm using it from someone else, so I'm not going to bastardize it that it's mine, but it's not mine actually. But it's like someone saying they compared like vegans and hunters kind of deal. It's almost like, in terms of opinions, like hey. I like heavy metal music. David John, you hate heavy metal music. But it doesn't mean you hate me as a person. You just don't like the music. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the, the, the situation with vegans and hunting. It's almost yes. like I know a lot of vegans that understand, I completely understand why people are vegan. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely applaud the lifestyle. Um, but I think there's a lot of and I think you would be in this category. There's vegans that understand people that eat meat and understand, you know, why you do it. And if and if you are going to do it, what's the best way to do it? That's huge. What is the best way to do it? And and you know, as a vegan, to me, hunting doesn't directly conflict with that ideology because. If you know, mostly I'm a vegan for my health. Uh, secondly, of course, I've developed this this deep sensitivity for the lives of animals, and I think the industry that farms animals for consumption is, you know, it, it has its specific pieces that I think are a little off-putting that that aren't mm-hmm. like the hunting community. So I I don't conflate the issues really. I think if if somebody mm-hmm. lives in a cabin, goes out, uh, hunts an animal, puts it in their locker to feed their family for the year. Um, I don't think that conf- that well. I can't speak for all vegans, but I don't think that should conflict with a vegan's worldview. Um, sure, because sure. you know that animal's life was it was fine and natural, lived a natural life, and then uh, served mm-hmm. a purpose with exchanging nutrients between you know with another life form. So I think that's totally fine. 
I'll 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 run a little tangential quickly, uh, and it's probably going to happen a lot in this okay. conversation. I have a feeling about it. We interviewed a, a lady called Katie Hargreaves out of the UK. She's a vegan. And she went hunting for the first time. She wanted to understand this thing. And she went hunting a little deer called a Chinese water deer. Uh, Chinese water deer are very prolific, have very, very high population densities in certain areas in England, to the point where they are of detriment to themselves. Mm. And the, way, the reason why she said she could hunt that animal was because removing that one animal from the population provided more of the animal welfare that she was after for the greater population of the deer. I, versus, I've, yeah, I've heard this. I, this was the first argument Kendall Jones gave to me. She, uh, she actually writes for our brand. And so she wrote an article for our brand about hunting and conservation hunting, like mm. what you're talking about. And when she wrote that mm. article... Um, I'm I'm one of the media directors, and so I have you know part of the brand is me. I have a little bit of ownership of the brand, and and so I um, I took a little issue with that. And I opened up a dialogue, and I thought, what what is I've n- I had never heard that before until she said it, and I thought that um, so my I, I understand the logistics of there's a population that um, yep if it's if it's too big there are too many uh, whatever. You know, you know more than me, but it, it is healthier when it's pruned down to a healthier uh, population. But my my question to that is, um, is is the reason that's necessary um, because of possibly the uh, losing their environment? Right? Is that us hundred percent that problem in the first place? One hundred percent. So in certain areas, this. Let me step back a little bit because this is exactly the conversation I want. I want you to have questions. I want to try and answer them. There is a gradient in this world of the emphasis of a human fingerprint on the landscape. I am a believer that every single ecosystem on this planet has had some sort of human fingerprint put on it. From the tropical rainforests that have a very, very, very minimal human signature to it, to the fields in Cornwall, England, that are hedged up, rowed up for agriculture with very small woodland pockets that have been set aside for one reason or another that are now sustaining deer populations. There are native deer populations, and there's also introduced deer populations. The Chinese water deer happens to be an introduced species uh, by the Lord of Bedford, Bexford, I think, back in the 1600s. He felt like he wanted to hunt Chinese water deer, so he just brought them in. Okay. Well, without any natural predators in England, those, those prey base is going to absolutely just go berserk, right? They're just going to increase and multiply in their population without some sort of predatory control on it just a basic biological tenant humans because of our fingerprint on those landscapes the the more the fingerprint from my from a hunting perspective or from a wildlife management perspective you need to do more to ensure that that system remains in balance Mm -hmm. now you could say well robbie you know yeah let's just let's just mother nature take care of things and she will, hmm. but it's not going to be pretty. 
Right. You know, when a, when a deer population gets to a certain density, any animal population gets to a certain density, one, it's going to outstrip the resource that it utilizes. Mm-hmm. So the animals aren't going to be healthy. You're going to see disease prevalence really ramp up in the population. And so you've got to make a decision as a wildlife manager whether you love animals. And I think, no, no, everyone loves animals. Hunters, right. me, I, I love so. animals. You <laughs> love animals. Of course we do. Yes. Because here's the, here's the answer to that. It's a very simple answer. If we didn't love animals, why would we keep them around or why would we increase their population? Yes, you do have, I'll be honest with you. Yes, there are people in the hunting community that just like to, sh- to kill things. Mm. Okay, that's me being honest. And we have to be honest too. But for the majority, we hunt because we see it as a way to manage populations in certain circumstances to ensure that that deer herd is, that animal herd, that wildlife herd is healthy, is sustainable, is balanced, and is serving the ecosystem that has cultural elements to it, has social elements to it, has biological elements to it, are all sort of in the sort of harmony or in synchrony. Do you think that, I mean, I, I look at that situation, and I think if we put ourselves in that situation, like for example, importing a species that wasn't native for sport hunting, whatever the intention was, I guess, you know, at a certain point, it doesn't really matter anymore. The population is mm-hmm. technically local or at least, you know, huge. I, I think there's a, it's, that's an unfortunate situation, you know, solving a problem that humans created um, by this, it, inserting ourselves in this way. I don't mean to seem, I, I think these are extreme before I even say them, but kind of quelling the population growth with our inflicted death upon them. And I know that is a, is a, is an intense way to say it, but to me, uh, like a good solution that is totally not practical would be move that population back to its native area. And I, and I know that that's a ridiculous thing to suggest because I'm sure at a certain point a population, maybe even just one generation is, is just, and is just too big to move back. And that's not mm-hmm. really a solution mm-hmm. anybody wants to undertake. Um, but then, but then I, 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 I've left with, with where I am with this, like, all right, well, we have a, we have what I think is a little bit of a toxic solution that maybe there's a better way. Maybe I'm not smart enough to figure it out, but maybe there's a better mm. way to manipulate the environment in a way where we do bring back the right conditions for mm. the animal population to manage itself. And mm. um, and I don't have any specific suggestions, and I'm sure I'm sure smarter people than I have thought this through. But I think my biggest concern. Well, my biggest concern, I have two concerns with with hunting to uh, manage population size. Um, number one is, well, you're, you know, we're ending the lives of these animals unnaturally, prematurely. And, you know, what happens with the dead animal is is neither here nor there at this point. I mean, if we eat it or if we display it or uh, whatever, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the animal is is deceased. So I, I don't think an individual cares too much what happens with their carcass. Uh, but um, on, on the other hand, the other problem, which I think is also worthy of solving, is the behavior and activity of of hunting for uh, sport or utility other than eating an animal mm. or defending yourself. Mm. I think that when it comes down to the individual, the hunter, the person who's doing the hunting, mm-hmm. um, I imagine you're of that 
of that category. I, I, I don't know the impact that would have I, I, on an individual. I mean, it's not an experience I'm going to ever try, but mm-hmm. I will just have to take people's word for it, a hunter's word for it. The experience maybe the first time or or you know, after a while, what does it actually feel like to mm-hmm. kill an animal um, mm-hmm. other than to eat it? And I, and I suspect that's not quite in line with a healthy, um, I don't know, healthy soul. If I were to be a little spiritual on the issue, I think that's kind of where I'm coming sure, from anyways, sure. to be honest. Uh, maybe yeah, that's yeah. something you could respond to. Well, I think to respond to the first one in terms of like managing, finishing up the management conversation, mm. I think one of the things that I always think about is if I had to remove myself, if we had to remove hunters, and even in those scenarios, it's not even hunters anymore, David, it's colors. Mm. Because you have to you have to cull the population. Otherwise there's just you the agricultural impact, the economic impact, uh road collisions for, for vehicles. There's just so, so many knock on effects. The, that's the word for that that person. So it's not hunting, it's culling. I didn't know I don't know. Yeah, that so you okay. so in, in England, let's just keep with the English example, they're called stalkers. They're called deer stalkers. Okay. And they stalk into nice. an area. No, <laughs> it isn't. And it is a it's a it's a population control uh, tool. Hmm. Okay, and they utilize the meat. All the meat's used. It's all put into the food chain in England. England has a very very good system for receiving venison and putting it into the food chain. You can buy venison in the local supermarkets in England. Hmm. And so the thing that I, want, I always think about is like, let's take the deer stalker out. And let's talk about animal animal welfare mm-hmm. for a second. What is a better solution here? Is disease, starvation, in terms of the death that's going to occur to that to that animal, mm-hmm. is that a better route forward, or the the very very um, quick elimination of their life? Through a hunter's bullet. Yeah, I mean, I, and that, I that animal—it's—it's it's better. So, that's—that is the balance from a management, from a pure population management scenario. Mm-hmm. Not all hunting is population management, right? Totally. But from a population management scenario, yes, you can translocate. It's certainly a management tool that is available to you if you can move the if you can move the animal somewhere. But I'll tell you now, for instance, like in South Africa, elephants on people's properties, you cannot give elephants away. Nobody wants them. (laughs) Right. So it's like, where do we take them? Like, what do we do? The Congo is looking for elephants. Okay, moving 60 elephants is like six and a half million dollars. Like how economically, how do you come up with that? So, So from the population perspective, I think that hunting plays a valuable tool. People in New York, for instance, have tried contraception they've tried okay. to uh castrate the bucks mm. on white-tailed deer on uh long island is that not and is that not effective that it did not work because you're you're isolating obviously bucks in a certain area but they're going to travel when it comes to the rut the rut is essentially a horny male horny dude looking mm. for sex all over the show i guess okay? it just takes one right just takes one yeah i can imagine <laughs> so didn't work. Contraception again, lots of lots of economic challenges and logistical challenges when it comes to contraception. Um, mm. All right, so let's talk to the big the big 
sort of the elephant in the room. Yeah. Which is your which is your big question here is like do people hunt how how can people hunt just for the pleasure of killing? Right. Did I capture that correctly? I, I think so, yeah. I, I I that is the thing that kind of pricks me the most is the the act of trophy hunting. I just even honestly saying that, just saying trophy hunting kinda Mm, kind of mm. gets me a little bit inside, you know, like mm. I, I'm not controlled by my emotions, but at the end of the day, there they are. And so I just yeah. get a little irritated. And I think the human part of that, the hunter in that scenario, what is that person like? What is the effect mm. on that person of that, mm. you know, that behavior? Um, I, I do not know the answer. I, I, I'm not making a judgment that hunters are bad people. It's more mm. of a curiosity that just doesn't sit right. Mm-hmm. What would you say, let me ask this question, because I actually never asked someone that is not a hunter the question. When you think of a trophy hunter, Mm -hmm. what do you picture? Okay, I picture perhaps just from the movies and things I've seen, but somebody with an an animal in their house that is taxidermied in some glorious position and then some someone telling this wonderful story about how they killed that thing. And, Mm -hmm. um, And then... You know the glory associated with that to me is is an issue. I, I don't know if we should be taking glory in having killed a thing. You know, I get bummed out when, when one of the plants in my garden dies. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't water my gardenias well enough, and now they're a dead shrub. That's that's totally on me, and I feel that. Uh, and so I can't imagine taking an animal's life in that way. What would you say if someone said to you that was a way to? remember and honor the life of that animal okay i i like that a lot i i like uh, of i mean that that actually sits really well with me to say to honor life i think you know we do memorials for humans in the same way and i think an animal you know there's there's a good thing there uh i don't uh (laughs) i have a hard time imagining that that is what's happening every time Um, yeah sure you know i i um, and i'm not and i'm not going to put it i'm not going to I'm not going to lie to you and say that that is that is what happens every single time. Um, but I think for the majority, and I'm, I think I'm confident in saying the majority, the majority of people will. I'm going to stay clear from the word trophy hunting for a while. I want to okay. because I've got a, I've got there's, a, there's a sort of steps to this. That's fine. I think the majority of people would would are are going to taxidermy the animal that they took as a as a memory of the animal of the hunt of the adventure of the place of the people it's almost like a it's almost like a photograph on steroids mm-hmm. essentially it's like this thing that i can remember it's a thing i can i can now i can still touch and i can still caress and i can and you really wouldn't be able to touch or caress that animal unless you had taken its life. Mm. That's a little bit morbid, but right. Yeah, I get that. I get that. It it does still seem a tad irreverent. To okay. Um, I I just I still uh I don't know if this is a common way to think of it. I, I feel like it would be to I imagine a taxidermy taxidermied animal as the animal. I understand it's mostly just the hide. Um, I don't know if Correct. most people do know that, but I, I, I do know that that is typically the case. Um, so, you know, how much of it is the body of the animal is, you know, that's, I guess, semantics at the end of the day, because 
if I, if it were a human, it would be horrifying. I just mm-hmm. just the imagine of replacing this taxidermy animal with a human. I've been to that exhibit, you know, Body Worlds. They yeah, they yeah, yeah. Around. We, I, a lot of us have seen that stuff, and it's like you stomach it for the education and kind of for mm-hmm. the morbid pleasure, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it's horrifying. And um, so when I walk into you know, I'm in Arizona and there aren't many like this, but there are some restaurants that have, you know, animal heads and and things around. I don't go much to those places because of my diet, but uh, I know those places exist. And I've had extended family who I don't visit their homes because when I do, that's their thing. Their thing is right. just, that's their de- decor, I guess, in their mind. It's just covering all the spaces with um, uh, full animals and heads of animals. Um, and it just doesn't seem very reverent. So I get the memoriam of the moment, but I think yep. there's still, and there, I'm sure there will always be a difference between how individual hunters take this mm-hmm. and how they each apply their reverence. Mm-hmm. But I'm, um, you know, maybe you can tell me from the community itself what um, what is what is the tone in the community about the animals that have died? Is it reverence or is it this is very very cool? I've done a cool thing, and and if a hunter looks at their um, their animal, their I don't know the proper word, the taxidermied animal on display. Uh, are they are they craving the experience of of killing something again? Mm. And, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. and I and I would assume that because of mm. the enthusiasm around the the community. Mm. But um, I would have to ask you. Yeah. So they are they're not they're not looking at the animal. And remembering the reverence of the death and, you know, honoring the animal's sort of death, essentially. But they're also not seeing that animal and rem- and, and sort of it creating some sort of bloodlust inside of them to say, I want to kill again. Mm. And here's why I say that. When you look at the general statistics, and we do this a lot, when you look at the general statistics of like how often someone actually kills something, the percentages are very, very low. And so let me give you an example. The, the Probably the greatest hunting population in the world is in the southeast of the United States that hunt white-tailed deer. Okay? That population, on average, only kills only 45% of the population of that hunting population actually kills one deer. So 55% of them don't. So, and to kill a second deer, it's almost like in the 30%. In Canada, it's like less than 1%. Oh, of so you're saying 1% of the hunters that go out to get a white tail in that area are successful? Correct. Is, is, so that, now somebody, is that per trip or is that like in the lifespan of a person who does this? In a, in a calendar year. Okay. So a lot of people will say, well, shit, man, these guys are just terrible hunters. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but what it points to, and there's lots of these kinds of statistics, what it points to is that it, it can't be just about killing. Okay. It has to be about something else. If your percentage is so low, I'll give you another example. And here's a controversial one. Bear hunting. Yes. Pennsylvania has a bear season. Pennsylvania sells almost 203,000 tags for black bears in the state of Pennsylvania. 
300,000? So that's... 230,000, 220,000. I'll have to look at the exact number. how many people are allowed to go out and try to kill one? That's how many people apply to kill one. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Each one of those tags, and here's another important point that I'm going to weave into the story. Each one of those tags costs, I think, like... I think it's like 48 bucks. Mm. Okay. So the revenue generated from 220,000 tags is like $3.4 million. Okay. And and that goes to, I'm, I'm guessing, goes, conservation? Goes straight to the wildlife agency. Okay. To do the work for maintaining and managing game species as well as non-game species, as well as state parks. All of those are typically wrapped into, some states have the state parks separated. Most states, the state parks are sit in, in under the Wildlife Fisheries Department. Okay. Of the 202,000 people, only 1,300 bears are actually taken. Hmm. Which means the, the chance of you killing a bear... It's very, very low, I guess. 1.68%. Wow. Well, I imagine that's a very intense situation, trying to kill a bear. Find a bear, regardless of, of, of kill one. Yet still 220,000 people try. Yeah. Um, why? Here's the crux is why. Like, why do people go to Africa? Yes. Like, when they see the trophy on the wall, when they see the taxidermy on the wall, what draws them back to do that again? Yeah, and I, and I have my unpleasant suspicions, but I'm ready, I'm ready for your take. No, you tell me. Well, I, it does seem like the thrill of the kill. And I'm not saying bloodlust. That's, you know, a word you suggested that that's a pretty intense word, but that's kind of, uh, it, you know, for someone to kill a bear, you know, all, all I have is like, uh, I guess the, uh, was, I just imagined that scene in the Simpsons with a big taxidermied bear and it's quite horrifying. Um, and you know, and I, you know, I grew up in California, we have bears and I, and I was camping. I saw, I know bears. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not that bad. They're all right. Mm -hmm. They're pretty cute. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. you just put one up there with his claws and his teeth out. And you're like, all right, well, I guess it's good to kill it because you pose it mm -hmm. like this terrifying monster. But at the mm -hmm. end of the day, they're not monsters any more than, well, they're even less monsters than we are. Um, yeah, but they're a resource, just like a deer. I, I think anthrop anthropomorphically, as you just mentioned, bears have this cute cuddliness associated with them. Yeah. But people still eat them, just like a white-tailed deer. They don't go to waste. Yeah. And I think... That's the key. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was I was going to kind of bring it back. And do you do you see a like do you see any kind of reverence in the in the hunting community for the lives of the animals taken, or is there is there something in the culture of hunting that does that? Um, I I only ever see the ones that hit the news, and it's like so and so poses with a dead lion, and yeah. everyone freaks out. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. that picture is. I mean, where's the reverence for a lion? Everyone thinks lions are these majestic things, and then here you are kneeling on one. So, mm -hmm. you know, where mm -hmm. where's the reverence? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to me, the reverence is in the food. I have a I have a full freezer of meat mm. that I feed my family with. Mm. Um, we eat two or three meals a week of venison. Um, it's the reverence in being able to provide others with really good organic meat. Mm -hmm. You know, I use this analogy a lot. Um, you don't ever see, and think about the costs, right? The costs associated with going to fulfill this 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 bloodlust. Let's just let's just say what you you think the hunting is. It's expensive. It's really, really expensive. Like fly yeah. halfway around the world and take off from work, and it's too weak. It does seem like a like a luxury activity. It's a luxury, but even for the south tail, you know, the southeast white tail guy, man, you're probably the pound 
per pound of whitetail meat, it's probably the most expensive meat that you can buy. It's worse. It's probably more expensive than Wagyu, you know? Yeah. But we're willing to freely give it away. Mm Mm-hmm. We want to share it. We want to share it with friends. We want to share it with families. We want to. We want them to enjoy the meat that we have. You know, to give to give some some respect to that. What you're saying, as a as a vegan, even I think it would be wonderful if the entire meat, uh, you know, consumer meat industry was replaced by actual hunting. This it, it sounds like what you're saying. I I think that's who who could argue that it's a good thing to hunt to store meat. And feed a feed a village, you know. Like who who could argue that with a sound mind and say that's a bad thing? Nobody, not even me. A, a, a modern, actually, you know, I'll actually hugging. say <laughs> that you did just argue that because that's exactly what happens in Africa for these big trophies that end up on the wall. Okay. Yes, I I do understand that it funds this, but I don't quite concede the connection between hunting, for example, an elephant or a lion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't quite understand bears. You say people eat them and that's totally, I, that's fine. I'll accept yep. that. But, you know, lions, yep. um, elephants and other kind of exotic, even, you know, African animals. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, these, these well-known African animals I mean are all of them eaten. I, I, I do not know the answer, but I just, uh, I, I don't think the behavior is entirely for feeding. It, I mean, whether it funds it or not, I think that's fine. Totally agree. Totally agree. Totally agree. The behavior yeah. is not totally for feeding. So let's let's give you some examples. Okay. Lions and leopards. Let's mm. talk about lions and leopards. Yeah. There are certain African communities that will eat leopard, but it's very, very small. Mm. For the majority, nobody eats lion, nobody eats leopard. When you hunt lion and leopard, I think the way that I look at it, and it's tough for someone that isn't sort of thinking through this to think this way, but I see lion like any other wildlife on the landscape. Yes, it's a mega charismatic, it's a you know mega, mega charismatic fauna. It's it's one of those things that you just said it, it elicits things, right? Simba and Lion King and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But it's exactly like any other wildlife on the landscape that is going to it it has a population to it. It has constraints because of human fingerprints or footprints. And there is an opportunity for for hunters to take lions out of the population once they have gotten to a point where they're not contributing any longer. They're being kicked out of the pride. Mm. And this is where there's a lot of um, age-based quotas, specifically for lions and leopards. So we want to take a lion that's eight, nine, ten years old already. It's already distributed its gen- genes into the population. It's been kicked out of the pride. It is the right lion to take because it's going to perish. It's going to die. It's not going to live forever mm. in the next one, two, three years. So economically, if the people in that area are living with lions and you want to see more lions on the landscape, they have to have a value. If there is no value to that lion, if nobody's going to come and hunt that lion, nobody's going to come and photograph that lion, and we're talking areas that you know it takes you three days to get to, very low densities of animals mm. at the end of the day, not really a place that an ecotourism, an ecotourist wants to land in because it's not luxurious. Yeah. 
then that animal, if it didn't have a value, the locals would say, get rid of it. We want our cattle, we want our goats, we want... And those lines conflict with that. Mm -hmm. But if that lion is giving the locals not the meat in this scenario, but is giving them a job as a skinner, as a tracker, as a camp chef, as laundry lady. Right. And it's giving them schools and it's giving them economic benefits and medical. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to like, yeah, we'll, we'll allow one or two of our cattle to be taken. Yeah. And, and this that I was specifically the issue I did take. I, I took issue with this because it, uh, mm. it was, and, and I, and I'm hearing this through, but also I'm still thinking we're weighing the life of, of these animals against the living of the locals. So there's kind of two moral things at odds here. Right. Um, and so, so I'm left thinking as someone who is just a guy outside of both of those scenarios, thinking, you know, it's, it's not my place really to be an authority, but couldn't we solve the issue in a more, uh, in a, in a more positive way? Like if, if there's a, it, you bring up livestock, you know, we'd rather have our farm livestock on the land, not threatened by these um, angsty rogue adult lions. And mm -hmm. I, I get that, but then I have to bring, you know, to the table a bigger issue here of, of livestock farming in general. And I think it may be unfair as, as a modern, um, you know, suburban American for me to judge the farming practices of villages in Africa. And of course it is, that's ridiculous. Um, I only have the examples of American livestock farming. There, mm -hmm. you know, in Arizona, we have Gilbert down the street, and it's huge for cattle farming. And if you're driving down the freeway, you're going to see these cattle farms, and mm -hmm. they're just—I mean, to me, they're horrifying. I think some people think they're quite beautiful and wonderful in in all the ways that they personally benefit from that happening. But all I see is is hundreds of individual lives just crammed into bumping mm -hmm. into each other for their entire mm -hmm. lives until they um, till they go to their unknowing death on some day. So that we can eat cheeseburgers, mm -hmm. and I just think, well, if if the only if we I know Temple Grandin, I I looked into her because she was an animal rights person who turned, you know, engineer for the purpose of a more humane life for livestock, and I I love what she did for a more humane life and death of a livestock animal. But at the end of the day, we don't actually need to have that as, as humans, you know, even for our nutrients, I've learned as a vegan, I've been vegan for a couple of years now, straight up and my health is great. And we literally do not need this. There's a lot of lies in the health industry about how much meat and dairy we need. You know, the health food pyramid that's still around is this absolute joke mm -hmm. of health advice. And I think most people are aware of that, but I still think there's a lot of people that are not. And so, you know, to be contrary to Temple Grandin's argument of, uh, and, and also to the argument of this helps uh, culling, your word, mm -hmm. helps the animals by keeping their population healthy. I think, well, the problem is that we're, we're maintaining these life forms, these animal lives, just for a tasty meal when it, the argument that it's for nutrients is just it falls flat when it comes down to the science of biology. It's not. We don't need to do that. We mm -hmm. are doing it as a luxury. And mm -hmm. throughout human history and evolution of you know, tribal humans and you know, agriculture and livestock development, all that kind of stuff, I get it. But, but we, um, we evolved this lazy kind of tip of the food pyramid way to get our nutrients, but it's even inefficient. It's less efficient to get your nutrients from 
animals than from the place that the animals themselves get the nutrients, which is, of course, plants. So for the benefit to be uh, of livestock to be like, well, they're alive because we are going to eventually eat them. Um, they shouldn't have had to live for us to eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, appeal to nature is, of course, seen as a logical fallacy in, in, in a more formal debate setting, but I think there's still value to let nature handle itself. And if we encroach upon the environment of an animal that is native to a land, um, you know, regardless of the ones who are imported, but if they are native to a land and we need to hunt them in order to keep their population healthy, that might be a sign that society is maybe building in the wrong direction. You know, we're building too much sprawl. Uh, I think sprawl is widely frowned upon when you're looking at someone who's looking into, you know, suburban, sustainable human living. You know, sprawl is bad for the natural environment. And of course, humans sometimes forget we're part of the natural environment. You know, we burst out of it as a flower of nature that already exists and manages itself perfectly. Um, and I and I think, you know, I'm I'm not in the kind of climate alarmist conversation, but there is something to be said for, you know, nature doesn't quite need us. We're, we're here as a luxury. And if we don't take care of things, nature might wipe us out and then it will be fine. You know, the earth will be fine. We're not actually destroying the planet. We're just kind of irritating it in the inevitable, uh, you know, moment that it will destroy us and then carry on and be probably healthier without us. So respecting our place on earth, I think about animals and how we treat them as a society. And I think hunting, and um, I know we're not specifically focused on trophy hunting in the conversation, but trophy hunting, general hunting, uh, culling kind of behavior, mm-hmm. all that comes as a, as a sort of peak on the scope of livestock farming in general as what has become a norm in human um, industry but not a necessity mm-hmm. in human health is just perhaps something that maybe we need to reconsider as humans. Like, do, do we need to keep doing this? Is this good and sustainable? I, I, you know, the world is talking about climate change. When I was young, we all, we just talked about pollution. We didn't talk mm-hmm. about all these fancy little political statements. We, we just talked about pollution and, and respecting life. And maybe this is just the ideologue in me thinking there's gotta be a better way and then not mm-hmm. having a good answer. Mm-hmm. But Well, uh, I think that's the classic case is when people say, mm-hmm. you know, we want to ban trophy hunting. Right. We're like, okay, great. Like we're on the same page, right? If you can figure if there is a way that we can give people the benefits that they're looking for, the lives that they're looking for, and at the same time protect the habitat that is absolutely fundamental to keeping wildlife around mm-hmm. and keeping wildlife balanced. Man, bring it, right? Yeah, I I would love that. I mean, I would love to find a a balance between humans and animals and all kinds of life where everything gets to live its natural life. Uh, You know, I'm I'm left thinking, you know, the whitetail and then these other animals who are imported, who we protect by hunting and culling. I wonder, what is the difference in their lifespan between living in in an area maintained by humans versus Mm – wherever their natural native habitat was. Like, would they have lived an extra 10 years? I, I don't think, I mean, I think that's generous. I know animal life, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer, I guess, but are we, are they getting a, a better life or a good life? Or is it somewhat akin to, I'm not going to say slavery, but a sort of this, like you're 
in this encampment where we decide how many of you there are at any one time. And when we make the call, we're just going to kill you based off our discretion. And I think the attitude around that is fairly cavalier. And I'm wondering if maybe that's not good for the human, uh, you know, individual psyche or the collective mm -hmm. kind of consciousness about our place in nature. Um, and I'm wondering if there's anything maybe that you think the hunting community can do to suggest meaningful change from the bottom up. And, and I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, the sustainability of livestock farming, and it, it, this this seems to be why this is necessary, or at least a lot of well, the reasons why it's justified. Yeah, no, I think, look, I think livestock is, there is it is a key. It's not the be-all and end-all. And when, when, you t when I talk about livestock in Africa, I'm talking about like subsistence livestock, right? You own six cattle, you own eight cattle, and two of them you're, is a term called labola, which is like you have to pay if your if your if your daughter's going to get married off, you have to give four of your cattle out because that's the dowry that she's going to take okay. with her to the new marriage kind of deal. Very cool. Um, and so, I I always think about in in and again, there's a very there's a gradient here, right, from very rural to almost this urban rural interface that we engage in in Southern, in in America, but in Africa, for the vast majority, it's very rural. People are just scraping by and how can we create a system by which you can benefit wildlife for our kids and our grandkids one day that maintain the best animal welfare possible for the animals to create the best biodiversity that we possibly can have, that we can maintain the best ecosystem services that this planet is looking for and also benefit people because people aren't going anywhere. We're not going to, you know, the protectionist ide ideologies of the past are being challenged nowadays that humans and livestock are should be a part of the ecosystem not excluded from the ecosystem mm. and but with that ideology you're also going to get more conflict right so then how do you deal with that conflict and at the end of the day economics play a major major role mm. and economics are needed for maintaining habitat maintaining people's value sort of judgments and hunting i wouldn't call it trophy hunting i'd call it hunting mm. because here's something i think that is important to share is that if you spoke with hunters no hunters saying i'm going trophy hunting yeah. it's just is that going a derogatory term in general well it's a term that was has been bastardized by mm. people who don't like hunting because like you're me. putting something <laughs> on the wall right no it's not i don't I, I, I don't think it's it's, and a lot of people have said, well, let's change the term, let's change it to conservation hunting. Okay. And I said, I like it. People may think that we're just putting lipstick on a pig. I kind of like that too, though, because here's why I I like the term conservation hunting mm -hmm. is when someone, I'll, and again, I'm going to be completely honest here, when a rich American flies to Africa. Mm -hmm and spends 20 days in the bush, they are very, very selective of the animals that they take. Mm. And those animals are only taken in order for that place and the populations of the species that they take to be conserved. Is, now, is the, do they get guidance from someone local who understands that, I imagine? Absolutely. 1000 percent you've got you've got professional hunters that know exactly they can judge age of animals mm. they know what animals to take 
because you've also got to think that the animals are an economic asset at the end of the day too, right? Okay. You want to sell more hunts in the future, so you want to keep animals going kind of thing. Okay. I, I that that actually I I hadn't thought of that. That does make sense. If they are a commodity, you want more of them. I, I I love that thought to be honest, and and I think that goes really well with the term conservation hunting. And I I would I it would make me very happy if that was a bigger part of the message of the hunting community. Wow. Conservation hunting. And you you say maybe lipstick on a pig. I think maybe, but also it's maybe something. But it's like explaining what the that. elements of the conservation, right? That's what you're looking for. That's, yeah, a, a reverence for it. I think uh, you know there's an opportunity to have a cultural impact impact on America. I don't pinpoint hunting as a problem. I'm going to put much energy into stopping. Uh, I enjoy being educated on it. Thank you very much. I, I think you know something I would love to to quell a bit is our dependence on livestock, and I think the hunting community may be a more authority. And if the message was coming from a, a you know, a blood origins, uh, you know, a, a brand like yours or a hunting kind of advocate or content, you know, and, and it was more conservation hunting, this is good mm -hmm. for animals. Um, and I appreciate some of your content is like that. Uh, that's, you know, if that could reach more people like me, we, you know, people like me, I, I'm a conservative, but also I am kind of not in this when it comes to things like animals hunting, nature right. I, I i'm i'm a bit like well maybe we should do something different here when it comes to that stuff and i think part of it is the the just the the blase attitude people have when they have meat on their plate it's just something that no one's going to think about that and no mm -hmm. one does unless you're uh, probably unless you're a vegan uh, you, you don't mm -hmm. think like that's a signif that's significant on my plate of food one of those mm -hmm. things was actually a thing with a face and a mother um, mm -hmm. and possible and uh, most of the time it was abused for its entire life um, so if you're a, an American meat-eating consumer that's typically the case so if that is true you know people get used to that over time and if the message came from someone they would trust more, like no one trusts a vegan. I mean, if you're like a regular meat-eating person, <laughs> we're just, we're just, you know, I, I hesitate to even say that I'm a vegan because it's like, all right, you know, my my radical opinion, left I, individual, categorized, right. put away. Yeah, I'm I'm one right. of those, right? But at the end of the day, I, I'm 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 a vegan by choice because of some thoughts I have. So maybe listen, you know, and and exactly. maybe there's there could be. You know, I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong or unnatural to eat animals. That would be um, scientifically inaccurate. Um, but uh, I think it, it makes me a little sad, the attitude taken towards it and how much there is in our diets. You know, how, you know I, I know as a, as a vegan, the experience I have all the time when I'm eating with other people is they don't think the meal is complete without meat on the plate. Like that's not a that's not actually a meal. They'll just call it a salad, regardless of what it is. No, that's just a side salad. Mm -hmm. like, well, it's not a salad, but it's 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 also there's nothing dead on my plate, you know. So I, mm -hmm. I don't I don't know. It's the attitude uh, I'm left thinking. I, I I'm not a judgy vegan. Like you know, I not people only ever find out that I am when they have a meal with me because it's very obvious. You can't you can't not have meat on your plate <laughs> and then have people not notice that. You know, it's like it's going to be noticed and it's going to be asked about and it's going to be talked about. And it's like I'm not bringing it up, but you know, you're noticing it on my plate and now we're going to talk about it. And then people always have this notion, like when I bring up, oh, I'm vegan. I I'm aware, like I have to be very gentle. At a dinner table, you know, this is often mostly colleagues and things that we're sharing meals with. I travel for a lot for work. And sure. so sitting around the table and I'm not eating meat, I'm just like, all right, 
I don't mean to make you all feel bad because you know because of course they think you know I'm gonna, I'm judging them and a lot of them get right. defensive immediately. That a lot of, of people do jump on the talking points of of pro. Well, that's what hunters do as well, right? Hunters too. You even experienced it when you made your comment, hmm. right, on our post. We were, there were a couple of people that immediately jumped on your ass. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me let me be. Uh, let me be the example, and that's the thing with Blood Origins. I want to set the example of how we engage people. I think it's I important. want to set the example of mm-hmm. yeah, listening to people, as you said. Yeah, just so that I'm I'm cognizant. Have you got a hard stop here? It's in six minutes. I um, I might start be getting interrupted after that point. Okay, well let's do this. Let's um, let's aim to wrap up because. But I will promise you this. I've this. We've gone for an hour. It felt like fifteen minutes. Yeah, it did. Yeah? Thank you. I want to do this again. Okay. Because you're the kind of you're the kind of sounding board that you have questions, deep questions mm. that I feel like we have the answers to. Okay. But it also presses me to really articulate how to uh, how to push those answers around. Um, I do want to give you this statistic, which is I think is quite a mind blowing statistic. When you think about conservation hunting in Africa. Love the term. Okay. Conservation hunting protects 1.5 million square kilometers of habitat in Africa. That is the concessions that people have bought from the government, that lease from the government, that are private lands from South Africa all the way up north. 1.5 million square kilometers. Mm. That is double the amount of area that is protected by national parks in Africa. Oh, okay. So that in Africa, the national parks in Africa, there are, there's more protected hunting land, private hunting land? Double. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So if we went to like the worst case scenario, yeah, which is get rid of hunting. Right. You're literally getting rid of 1.5 million square kilometers of protection or value of the habitat itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I, I can't change people's motivations to hunt. Mm. Some people's motivations are that they'd like to go to Africa to kill as many things as they possibly can. Yeah. Okay? But I think that is a very, very, very small minority of individuals. The vast majority of individuals are going to Africa to have the most incredible adventure that they possibly could do. Mm. It's like going to Everest and wanting to scale Everest. And the killing component is literally the last step up to the summit of Everest. Mm. People don't remember... They, they don't talk about that last step. They talk about the entire journey. They talk about the entire adventure. Yeah. That's what the majority of hunters are doing when they hunt, is that it's for the experience. And those statistics that I gave you scientifically back up the statement Mm. that you get to experience something, you get to experience a culture, a place. And yes, the the, the biggest hurdle that someone that is vegan, that is anti-hunting, struggles with is that why couldn't you just go do that and not kill something right but that's what they went to do Mm -hmm. 
they went to do it. And it's much more expensive than going to take a photograph, but they chose to spend that money to do that thing. Mm. They're very selective in what they take. It has extreme benefits and consequences to people, wildlife communities all around the world. We can go next time we can get to, we can get to New Zealand and Pakistan and Tajikistan and all these places that have wonderful wildlife populations now because of conservation hunting. And that sounds wonderful. I, I, I love that there's that much land protected because of this. I understand that you can't control the attitude of someone who has the cash to be able to participate in this kind of adventure. Um, I, I just, that's kind of what I lament is that attitude. I'm, I'm here to, to learn. I love the, I love that it actually does make an impact. Um, and I think maybe there's a little bit of that. It's because it's Africa and the percentage of land that is, um, not populated is maybe vaster than even in America where maybe America is where the problem is as far as excessive excessive animal deaths when they just aren't needed. Uh, whereas perhaps in Africa, it is a more respectable um, approach to conservation. So I will, I will leave you with this. It's about the same. Okay. It's about the same in terms of the amount of land being protected, the amount of land being restored, the amount of land being looked after in America because of the value that the wildlife has. Yeah. Well, I think maybe there's a there's a sort of joining forces situation that could happen between conservation hunting and veganism, and I and I see there's a there would be a little bit of an audience clash, but I think as far as ideology, maybe there's a little mending that could happen in that space. I'm ready for that. I I would love that, and um, I I know that the issues aren't the um, the professional hunters in general that um, a vegan might have a specific issue with, but also kind of. No, they have, no, you have issues with this idiots, the bad apples. Yes. And vice versa. We have issues with the idiot vegan. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of those for sure. (laughs) I know that. A lot of unscientific ones who just kind of freak out. I get it. I don't represent them all. David John, amazing. Thank you. Thank you for the courage that it took for you to say yes. I was a little nervous at first. Thanks for thanks for the emails back and forth, making sure we. I knew there wasn't going to be a battle. I, I, I know I'm not educated on the topic, uh, but I've got my passions. Well, I think you are leaving today a little more educated I on am. the topic. For sure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, Do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.